Hello, uh, welcome to the H.P. Lovecraft Book Club. Uh, in each episode of this podcast, I'll be looking at uh, a bit of Lovecraft's writings. Currently, we're going through, I guess, assorted writings he wrote in the 1920s, especially the later half of the 1920s. We will look through the letters. We looked at supernatural horror and literature. And now uh, I'll look at some of the poems that he published and wrote in the, in the second half of, well, pretty much throughout all the 1920s. Um, I, I just want to tell you what my source is for this. It's, um, it's a downloadable, complete works of H.P. Lovecraft called The Complete Poetry of H.P. Lovecraft. Um, and I'm pretty sure this doesn't have them all. There's a whole volume that's like hundreds of pages called The Ancient Track, which has a lot of his poetry. I think that might include a lot of the poetry that appears in his letters um, and in other places. So this is mostly just the published uh, poems. So I think there's a lot more out there, um, but I just don't have access to that volume now. So it may be a cleanup thing if I ever get a hold of the ancient track, come back and see if I missed any important poems. But I'm not really a poetry guy, so I'll just kind of do the best I can with these. Uh, I know some people would kind of run wild with these poems a lot more than, than I would. Um, specifically, I'm going to look at uh, his his kind of supernatural poetry from, I guess, Cats. The Cats was written in, in 1925 up into, but not including Fungi from Yugoth. Fungi from Yugoth was actually written in the late 1920s and 30s. He'd actually, I know earlier than... 1929, he was writing like stanzas from this because he sent them to people in his, and he talks about this in his letters. But I was published in, uh, well, I guess it wasn't published until 1943. So I'm just going to hold off on Fungi from Ugoth, kind of seeing that as like a later period uh, piece. Um, so uh, I'll do that. I'll go, th I'll, I'll mention the poems I looked at. I'll give you some of my thoughts about them. And then uh, I guess we can wrap up this series. Uh, where the cornerstone of it was the letters from the late 1920s. And then we'll, we'll jump right back into stories for that same period. So we'll be looking at the stories from 1925 till 1930 or so, which will be a pretty long series. We got a lot of revisions in that period, um, some really long revisions. We got some long stories too, like Dream Quest of the Unknown Kadath, Case of Charles Dexter Ward, Call of Cthulhu, uh, and a lot of shorter but very important stories like Strange High, Ho Strange High House on the Mist and all that. So um, actually uh, the bulk of the stories remaining to look at uh, in Lovecraft's whole career were written in that period of time. So I'm looking forward to getting back into the stories actually pretty, um, pretty desperately. Now I would say these poems that I, I looked at and I read and I listened to some of them uh, recordings thankfully so much of like all this Lovecraft stuff's public domain so you can find uh, LibriVox readings of, of all this stuff and a lot of different youtubers reading this Lovecraft is so so immensely popular <clears throat> but I'm anyways I found it sort of what I thought is it was really a common theme in most of these poems and that really has to do with with time the survival of the wild the survival of uh, like really the survival of things that are beyond human time and human conceptions, right? So that's, of course, a very strong Lovecraftian theme. We've seen it in some of his earliest stories, right? Dagon, we saw it in uh, 
the temple. Uh, you saw it in, in so many of his early stories, right? That people unlock something that goes far beyond human conceptions of time, right? It's kind of part of the cosmic horror tradition, right? But I, mean, I would say all the poems I, I read here sort of get to that theme in, in one way or another. So it's, it's kind of interesting how I'm like, oh, this poem really seems to be saying the same thing as the last poem. And this is even true of The Cats, uh, written in 1925, published not until 1977, uh, which were given kind of a, an urban scene, and were given uh, scenes of all the feral cats of the community. Legions of cats, quote, legions of cats from the alleys nocturnal, howling lean in the glare of the moon, screaming the future with mouth-themed infernals, yelling the burden of Pluto's red rune. But then we get the realization that this is like a dead city in the very next stanza. Tall towers and pyramids, ivied and crumbling. Bats that soup low in the weed-crumbling streets. Um, so we got this ancient... And I mean, this is what comes up again in these stories, again and again. Like a decaying, ancient human creation. And then something that's much deeper and long, like more ancient than that like is behind it. It might be a more ancient civilization, a more ancient knowledge, or in some cases, traditions. A lot of times he's going to talk about these ancient traditions that, that transcend human scale. Here it's the cats, the consciousness of the cats, the agency of the cats, which, you know, I think it's not hard to believe that that's the case. So the cats sort of does this in, in an interesting way. So we, we got the first, we feel like we're talking about feral cats, and then it flips around and we're actually talking about cats dwelling in this ancient, decaying long dead city but they still kind of have these rights they have their own rights like they're worshiping the moon it seems quote and living to answer the wind and the water only the lean cats that howl in the wastes the the, the prayers of the cats i guess that's what's going on there so that's that um now the festival this was written in december 1925 this was sent as a christmas poem to farnsworth Wright and um, published, and then it was turned around and published the very next year, in 1926, by Farnsworth Wright. So um, kind of surprised Lovecraft. Lovecraft didn't submit, submit it to be published. He submitted it just as, a, as, a, as kind of a Christmas um, poem. But this one, again, deals with something really, really ancient that's transcending human scale. Um, the first stanza is just a nice wintry description. Uh, lights on the hilltops during a winter night. All right, so you got this winter night, and then we got these rituals going on in some hilltop. Obviously, if you read this, it's hard not to think of the festival, the story, the festival. Um, and, and maybe there's a relation here. Both deal with cults engaging in, in rituals at night. Um, I don't think the festival is set during wintertime, though. But the difference here is that these aren't humans are like ghosts or spirits so it's actually the dead the quote for the dead in their shrouds hail the sun's turning flight and chant wild in the woods as they dance around a yule altar fungus and white um i guess the no i'm wrong now that i think about it yeah the festival was a yule ceremony too that's why i was thinking about it when i read this it was a yule i was confusing it with uh the witch house story that's another like kind of primordial holiday that's that's at the center of that tale uh, dreams of the witch house that is so yeah so it's maybe it's connected but there 
I guess they're also monsters. I don't know if they're the dead. Maybe. Maybe it's similar. It could be Kingsport. It could be Kingsport. Why not? Um, but the Yule ceremony, of course, is one of these traditions that that go way, way back, right? That are primordial in, in human kind of memory. You go to the most ancient religions of Europe and you find Yule ceremonies, right? And of course, the Christians just sort of adopted them. That's the old argument for, for why we have Easter when we do, why we have Christmas when we do. They just kind of borrow these popular pre-Christian holidays for their own religion. Um, and we it's actually ex explicitly stated here that they are living carrying on the powers of the Druids, of the lost Druid folk. So, that's the... Now, these are not good people, though. Uh, the last stanza tells us this, suggests this. And mayest thou to such dee be an abbot and priest singing cannibal greeds at each devil-wrought feast, and to all the incredulous world shewing dimly the sign of the beast. Right, so, uh, the suggestion being that this is all going on and we're sort of oblivious to to this that's very much a very very strong lovecraftian theme of of ancient traditions and in fact the very first story we're going to come back to i believe is uh horror at red hook which is all about that it's probably one of his best tales about cultists doing culty things uh what's next halloween in a suburb aka in a suburb so i think halloween in the suburb is how it's normally given uh, the title, um, written in March 1926, published in the National Amateur. See, he's still publishing in these amateur journals. Um, and again, this is really about the, the, the survival of the past. Now, here we're given a village with all these beasts, right? And, and it is kind of a Halloween. It's another, I guess, uh, it's not, not published near Halloween, though. No. It was... Written and published both in March 1926. Uh, he didn't wait till Halloween to publish this. But, you know, of course, in Halloween, you do have beasts and vampires and harpies wandering around the city, right? But I think the suggestion here is more of a real, uh, real creature, real monsters. Uh, a city alive with beasts. Quote, the chill wind weaves through the rows of sheaves in the meadow that shimmels pale and comes to twine where the headstone shines and the ghouls of the churchyard wail for harvests that fly and fail. Um, but what's, what he kind of suggests here is like this survival of the past, like this, the, the, um, the next stanza opens, not a breath of the strange gray gods of change that tore the past from their own can quicken the hour when a spectral power spreads sleep over the cosmic throne and looses the vast unknown, all right? So there's always this permanent threat that this, this, these powers, these monsters, this, this et eternal past, and these, the, these survivals that are never fully suppressed will, will reemerge. So that's it, it's the survival of the wild, all right? In fact, the wild is the theme of the final stanza when Lovecraft writes, then wild in the dark, let the lemurs bark and the leprous spires ascend. For new and old alike in the fold of horror and death are penned for the hounds of time to rend. So this, again, time and eternity being there. So again, the point I'm making here is that thematically, these poems, they all, they, they all sort of touch the same nerve. I, I, I was kind of surprised at that. This was really on his mind in the poems from this time. Uh, the next one, uh, The Wood, written January 1929, also uh, published in January 1929 in the tryout. It's another one of these um, amateur journals. And thematically, it's the same. 
Uh, we start out, we're given a city in the woods. Uh, so this tension between nature, the eternal, the past, and human creations. What they cut it down, and where the pitch black aisles of forest night had hid eternal things, they scaled the sky with towers and marble piles to make a city for the revelings. So it's just humans creating a city out of, out of nature. They do that all the time. Uh, second paragraph, second stanza. White and amazing to the lands around, that wondrous wealth of domes and turrets rose, crystal and ivory sublimely crowned with pinnacles that bore unmelting snows. So this is more on the, the endurance of the, or the creation of this great city. Now we get the decline, the decadence. So this is obviously something we saw before in like the doom that came to Sarnath, uh, to a degree in the temple. No, the, the, not the, the tomb, I mean. The temple maybe too. It's here. It's suggested there too. Decadence plays a role, but here we have debauchery, rituals, decadence, afflicting the city. It very much smells like uh, the doom that came to Sarnath. He writes, and though its halls and through its halls the pipe and sinstrum rang, while wine and riot brought their scarlet stains, never a voice of elder marvels sang, nor any eye called up the hills and plains. So the danger here is that they seem to be forgetting. Uh, the world they live in, right? They, they forget uh, the elder marvels, and they don't, and they forget nature. They turn their back on the hills and the plains, where presumably something is still alive. Um, then we have a curse arrives in the next stanza. Quote: Thus down the years, till in one purple night, a drunken minstrel in this careless verse spoke the vile words that should not see the light, and stirred the shadows of an ancient curse. Unquote. So in this stanza, we see someone makes a mistake, someone revives that ancient curse. And what survives, of course, are these ancient traditions that have been awoken by this. So you can build a city, you can try to forget it, you can embrace your drunken debauchery, you can, you know, try to escape it, but it's always going to come back and, and get you. Forests may fall, but not the dusk they shield. That's great. That's a great line. Forests may fall, but not the dust they shield. So on the spot where that proud city stood, the shuddering dawn, no single stone revealed, but fled the blackness of a primal wood. Right, this is one of my favorite of this set, actually. Short, it's to the point, and it, it kind of, you know, combines different things that are key themes in Lovecraft, like tra ancient traditions, the struggle of civilization to survive, admits uh, a surrounding surrounding blackness and and eternity eternity itself the survival of traditions um, a lot of common themes and just a few short stanzas so the outpost that's next written in november 1929 uh, published in bacon's essays in, in 1930 so maybe i should have held off on this one um, but i'll take it it's it's here so i've already kind of read it now this one is kind of unique not unique, because I want to say Lovecraft never talks about Africa, but he rarely talks about Africa. Um, I guess the closest we get to a real in-depth window into his views on Africa comes in the, the Arthur German story. But here we have, it's about Great Zimbabwe, and it's a great setting for this tale, because I don't, I'm not quite sure when Great Zimbabwe was discovered, um, which of course is a like a ruin in Southern Africa, right? And for people who used to argue or suggest, maybe not directly argue, but at least strongly suggest that Africa didn't have a history before Europeans came. They were just like stateless societies. 
you know, pastoralists or, you know, basically Stone Age or, you know, farmers. Obviously, none of that's true. They were Iron Age. They got to the Iron Age without the Bronze Age. That was um, a very distinctive element of African civilizations. Um, or this idea that they didn't have cities. You know, they had cities, but they didn't all survive. Uh, they were interacted with. In, the, another kind of motif is that Africa was isolated. It wasn't. It was deeply tied to the Indian Ocean trade, to uh, northern Medi like northern African tr trade, to the Sahara. You know, very, very much integrated into the broader world. Uh, so Europeans didn't bring any of this stuff to, to Africa. But at the time that Lovecraft's writing, there are these kind of presumptions about Africa as sort of the dark continent, as sort of a, a blank slate until Europeans came. So the discovery of Great Zimbabwe is, you know, shows an ancient city and actually a pretty impressive ancient city that, you know, in southern Africa, you know, one thing to say in northern Africa, like Timbuktu, you know, that's tied to the Islamic culture in various ways. This was really kind of a striking find. And this apparently is where Lovecraft um, sets it. In fact, his descriptions are very similar to, you know, what it actually looks like. Um, Strange turrets rose beyond the plain and walls and bastions spread around the distant domes that followed the ground like leprous fungi after rain. So I couldn't help myself. I just wanted to dig up the history here. So Zimbabwe, Great Zimbabwe's peak was the... 11th to 15th century and they were like a tied to the east african coast so it's all tied with the indian ocean trade um, and so the ruins were rediscovered during a hunting trip in 1867 um, possibly the portuguese had found them before but real interest in it doesn't really take off because at the time it was kind of seen as the lost kingdom of solomon or the queen of sheba that kind of stuff but um it was kind of, there was a growing interest in Great Zimbabwe as British colonialism in Southern Africa was more and more deeply entrenched, I guess. Uh, so Carl Peters, he went there in 1905 and, and other people started visiting after that. So Cecil Rhodes paid for some funding to explore it. So it really, it's around this time that there's growing interest. Now here's what's notable. And, and maybe it's connected to the Lovecraft sto uh, poem here, is this little entry. In mid-1929, Gertrude Catton Thompson concluded after a 12-day visit of a three-person team in the digging of several trenches that the site was indeed created by Bantu. She had first sunk three test pits into what had been refuge heaps, and then she did this research. So um, her claims were not immediately favored. However, strong support followed with more modern methods. So I'm not sure when her these results were published, but it might be that this is why Lovecraft wrote this is because new research about Greece and Bobway emerged. But that seems to be what this is about. So we're, we get this description of Great Zimbabwe and the ancient places there. Uh, and we have like an explorer going there and observing it. Um, and then he sees in there like various creatures, um, in human shapes, half seen, half guessed, half solid and half ether spawned, seethed from starless voids that yawned in heaven to the blank walls of pest. Um, and so the real, what he, what, what's found here is there's a curse of sorts, but what's found here is uh, some kind of window into deeper time, right? Which itself is kind of a troublesome 
way Lovecraft's dealing with this, rather than seeing this as like a just a Egyptian uh, or a, I'm sorry, a, an African civilization in its own right. It it kind of gets grouped into Lovecraft's views of like primordial places, I guess. But here's what he writes. Their hidden dread-ringed outposts brood upon a million worlds of space, abhorred by every living race, yet scatheless in their solitude. Um, sweating with fright, the watcher crept back to the swamp that serpents shun, so that he lay by rise of sun, safe in a place where he slept. None saw him leave nor come at dawn, nor does his flesh bear any mark of what he met in that cursed dark. Yet from his sleep all peace has gone. So that's kind of like a Dagon story almost it, like the story is similar to Dagon in that way that Jeff's someone who comes across something sees something horrible goes mad can't really function anymore can't sleep whatever but I think this kind of this is just a little document uh, into um, you know being set in Africa and maybe tied to recent discoveries about about Great Zimbabwe which is something that I think certainly would be of interest to to someone like H.P. Lovecraft. All right, next, next poem here. Uh, the Ancient Tract. Uh, this is actually the name of the anthology of his poems, which I've heard is really great and really valuable, but I just don't have it. Um, written in November 29, published in March 30th in Weird Tales. Um, so this is literally an ancient track in like the woods, in the back countries of Arkham, Arkham. You know, we, we know because Dunwich is actually mentioned here directly. Um, so it's all about, so the guy's walking in this, on this ancient track, and then he finds, like, memory of, of what's there. Or he remembers where he is, in a way. Quote, over the hill and strained to see the field that tested my, teased at my memory. This wall, this, that tree, sorry, this tree, that wall, I knew them well. And all the roofs and orchards fell familiarly on my, on my mind, upon my mind. And from a past not far behind, I knew what shadows would be cast. When the late moon came up at last from back of Zeman's hill, and how the veil would shine three hours from now. So he knows all these details about this uh, ancient track that he finds. So the first line is he finds this ancient track, but then immediately we're, we get all this memory of, like specific memory, like how long till sunrise, how long till sunset. The actual where the trees are and rocks and all that so very very detailed memories of this it's kind of reminds me a bit like the festival where you got someone who's like apparently to this place for the first time but when he gets there all this stuff is sort of awakened in him and and there's some kind of inherent knowledge that's maybe genetic almost maybe that's what what's going on here now we actually get this mention that it's two miles to dunwich so this was written not around the same time as the dunwich horror so that's uh, name dropping the story he was working on or just recently published. Maybe maybe I can find out. Yeah, Dunwich Horror is published in 1928. So he's pushed deeper and deeper into this. Quote, there was no hand to hold me back. That night I found the ancient track and reached the crest to see outspread the valley of the lost and dead and over Zeman's hill the horn of a malignant moon was born. But then he's pulled into some place he doesn't know. He says, so... Um, to light the weeds and vines that grew on ruined walls I never knew. So his memory seems to evaporate at this point. And then we get like a moment of cosmic horror when he um, looks on this land. Around was fog ahead and spray of star streams in the Milky Way. There was no hand to hold me back that night I found the ancient track. So this endless pulling into the unknown. Um, 
So memory, forgetting, uh, the pull of the unknown, uh, ancient locales like Dunwich. Dunwich, we'll get into Dunwich's history. It's a, it's a really, really weird place with a deep history of its own. And of course, connection to all sorts of weird, weird rituals and things. All right, next poem, The Messenger, written November 30th, 1929, and published in Weird Tales. Not for another decade, though, until the 29th. So this is just a two-stanza poem. Uh, it's, it's to Bertrand K. Hart, Esquire. So the story here is this was written in response to Hart, who, uh, in the Providence Journal, who discovered that Wilcox's residence in the Call of Cthulhu was his own. Um, and he kind of writes a, a letter uh, to, I guess, to no, it's in the Providence Journal. He writes this letter kind of complaining about this. And he says, I shall not be happy until joining leagues with race and ghosts. I've plumped down at least one large and abiding ghost by way of reprisal upon Lovecraft's own doorstep in Barn Street. I should, I think I shall teach it to moan a mild dissonance every morning at three o'clock sharp with clinking of chains. So he's, he's just having a little bit of fun with Lovecraft, I guess. But Lovecraft writes this uh, response um, about the thing. So the story is essentially the, the narrator here is told by the messenger, who's just he in, in, the, in the poem, that something would come at night at three. Um, what the, when else do we see that time? I guess that was the Sonia Hart Green story where there's a specific time where some creature was going to come. Was it like 4 a.m. or 3 a.m.? That story is all about insomnia, though. But... Uh, you know, that there's this warning that this thing will come at three. And the narrator says, Surely I'm used it was a pleasantry devised by one who did not know, truly know the elder sign bequeathed from long, from, from long ago that sets the fumbling forms of darkness free. So he's like, I'm not too worried about it. The second stanza, though, is essentially three o'clock comes, the steeple chimed three, and the firelight faded bit by bit. Then at the door, the cautious rattling came, and the mad truth devoured me like a flame. So it comes. So we got the warning and it comes. That, that's all. Very, very straightforward um, poem. But I guess it has an interesting backstory. So maybe that's the, the interest here. So I want to mention those, those poems, I think, all sort of go together as exploring with this theme of time and traditions and, and deep history and, and our human scale encountering these, these traditions. And they're all pretty effective. I, I like I like these poems quite a lot. This set, how many were there? Six of them, but they do kind of no seven with with cats, the cats. They all sort of fit together. Um, I got I found a couple other poems here written in the twenties that are relevant to just talk about. I'm not going to say I'm not going to kind of do a line by line analysis of them, um, because one of them, Waste Paper, is just a parody of the Wastelands by um, T. S. Eliot. You know, if you followed me when I was reading the letters. You know Lovecraft is very, very ambivalent about modernism. He, he doesn't think it's horrible. I mean, he respects some of what the modernists do. He just doesn't think there's any... It doesn't go anywhere, really. It's just kind of a cul-de-sac. Maybe an interesting cul-de-sac, but really it's, it's not going to... It's not going to endure, he thinks. And he's kind of openly hostile to some modernist writings. And apparently uh, The Wastelands was one of those. So he thinks... Lovecraft said the Wastelands is a practically meaningless collection of phrases, learned allusions, quotations, slang, and scraps in general. So that's what he writes. And, and so if it's just scraps, if it's just uh, like slang and quotes and garbage, 
it's not surprising he calls his own poem here waste paper he subtitles it a poem of profound insignificance um, so we can get a, a bit of it here and in, the, in his own effort at this is really just the same kind of thing it's as he describes the wastelands to be i'm not going to say he's right in describing the wastelands that way but it is what he did uh, he, he, so here's a little bit of it out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I never quote things straight except by accident. Sophistication, sophistication. You are the idol of our nation. Each fellow has fallen for jazz, and we'll give, give the past a merry razz. Through the gold ghoul-guarded gateway of slumber, the fellow guest ship with the gutless worm. Next stop is 57th Street. 57th Street, the next stop. Achilles' wrath to grease the dire, direful spring. And the Governor General of Canada is Lord Bring whose ancestor was shot or hung. I forgot which. The good, uh, the good die young. Here's to your ripe old age. Copyright 1847 by Joseph Miller. Entered according to Act of Congress in the office of the Librarian of Congress. America was discovered in 1492. And he goes on like this. Again, I don't know if that's the proper kind of parody of Voicelands, which you know I maybe glanced at in the past. I never really read it. Um, but I think it's notable in the conversations we've been having about Lovecraft's attitude towards modernism, one of the hallmarks of modernist writing, uh, which I apparently know nothing about. Uh, you want to talk about Joyce, I can talk about Joyce, but you know, there's a lot of that stuff I haven't read. And T.S. Eliot's one of them. Maybe someday, maybe someday. The other one I want to talk about is Providence, September 1924, published in the Brooklynite. So this is when he's still in in New York. We, we talked so much about Providence in New York and Lovecraft's attitudes towards them. Now this was not written after he returned to Providence. This was written while he's still in in New York. But it's just a love letter to Providence. He makes a lot of references to the architecture, the, the ancientness of the city, its its natural environment, its weather even, its churchyards, stone bridges, all, the, all these things. It's just, a nice, it's just a love letter to his, to his hometown, written at a time when he perhaps was missing it uh, a little bit. So, um, so how many poems is that all together that I mentioned here? So about 10? Yeah, 10 poems that um, I think they're all worth checking out, all reading, if you're, if you're a Lovecraft fan. So don't neglect the poems. I'm not a poem guy, but, but even I can see that you better, you're better off reading these than neglecting them. So, so that's going to be it. I'm putting an end to this series uh, of like a, so, uh, like a random writings or non-stories written in the 19, later, later half of the, of the 1920s. So we're going to pick up next time with the, the stories. We're going to start with the stories that Lovecraft wrote under his name. Uh, I decided I am going to do the Roman dream story as, as a story, as a standalone story. So we'll do that explicitly. We'll, I'll take uh, the version and the selected letters as my source. So that's going to be, it's like 15 or 20 stories altogether. I think we want to include the history of the Necronomicon, perhaps in that group. There's a few short ones and like, Ibid is written in this period too, which is just a kind of a joke about footnotes. I'm not quite sure how I'm going to break it up, but some of these will be multi-part episodes for sure. Certainly the case of Charles Dexter Ward, Dream Quest of the Unknown Kadath. Um, there's actually a few other. Dundra Tor might easily be a 
two or three episodes. So, you know, if the audiobook's about an hour long, I'll, I'll kind of do it in one ep- episode. If it's a little bit longer, I think I'm going to try to break it up a little bit more. Then we have a bunch of revisions to do to look at from this period as well, including like the Zelia Bishop revision, the Curse of Yig, Two Black Bottles. What else? Electric Executioner. The Last Test. The Last Test is a long one. So a lot of like key stories in the Lovecraft uh, in, in Lovecraft's career. Case of Charles Dexter Ward. Color Out of Space. Uh, of course, The Call of Cthulhu. Pickman's Model. Dunwich Horror. So we're really getting to the thick of it now. And I'm really, really excited to get back into the stories shortly. Um, at, at times, I found the letters to be a bit of a, a slog. Um, there's been personal things in my life, too. My cat ran away. Uh, so that's been fucking me up a little bit. But anyways, um, that's going to be it for now. So if there's anything that I should be including in these like offshoot little series where I'm going to look at Lovecraft's non-story writings, it's, it's easy to just look at the published stories. But I want to be as complete as possible. So if there are really important works that I'm somehow forgetting about like one for instance as we know who he wrote these revisions for houdini about skepticism um you know if i if anyone has those you could send them to me and i would uh, certainly reference them someone actually sent me the astronomy works i didn't know i didn't have access to those but someone sent them to me uh in the in a previous episode i looked at some of his astronomical writings uh, which he wrote a whole series of astronomy like educational pieces for the newspaper uh, so if you have anything like that kind of stuff, send it to me and I'll, I'll try to include it at some point in this podcast. So anyways, uh, thanks for listening to the HP Lovecraft Book Club. Uh, I look forward to joining, uh, coming back fairly shortly with stories again. Um, I've, I've missed reading his stories. They're, they're always fun. So um, thank, But thanks for listening and let me know what you think and I'll see you next time.